let's actually look at the incredible incarnation and what that means to us. I think sometimes we lose sight of just how amazing it is that God became flesh. I think sometimes we lose sight of that. And as we look from Christmas and we move on to New Year's, um, the reason why I can have hope, the reason why I can have peace, the reason why I can have joy, it's none other than because of Jesus Christ. And so let's look at that tonight. The text tonight, the, the verse I guess we're going to look at, amongst a lot of others, is John 1.14. Let's look at it, and let's read this. And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glories of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. For those of you who don't know, throughout the Gospels, there are several different looks at Jesus. And the reason why some of them kind of, they share the same story from different angles, the synoptic Gospels and others, um, the reason for that is so we can see different aspects of Jesus Christ. So when you look at Matthew, it portrays Jesus as the King of the Jews. Luke, it portrays Jesus as the Son of Man. Very important. By the way, that's why we have the birth story of Jesus in Luke chapter 2. In Luke, he is, wait one second, I mess it up. What a mess up. He is the, what is he? Mark, suffering servant. Oh, my word. And then John, there you go, he is the son of God. My word, I am, I am out of it. Anybody still kind of in a ham coma from, from Christmas? <laughs> That's my excuse, okay? I, I've known that for a long time, and I completely forgot it. And Jeremy's like, you idiot, it's this. Oh, thank you. So John 1, it talks about the word. And, and I want you to understand this as we look at this. The word is none other than Jesus Christ. So when it says the word was made flesh, it's talking about Jesus and his incarnation. So we see several different statements here in this verse. And the word was made flesh. Then the next statement, and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glories of the only begotten of the Father. And then the last part, full of grace and truth. We're going to look at some of those statements tonight and kind of look at them in the whole of Scripture and kind of understand what they mean. Because sometimes we read through verses like this and we just move on and we don't really allow it to sink in. So first of all tonight, point number one, the word was made flesh. So as we talk about the incarnation, that is what it is, is when Jesus Christ became man. And that is a tremendous thing. As we look at this, I want you to understand that this was a promise made to the nation of Israel, and specifically to Ahab. So Isaiah chapter 7, verse number 14. Um, God tells Ahab, which is very unique, hey, ask a sign. Give, you know, just, hey, whatever sign you want, I will do it to prove to you that I'm going to do exactly what I said I was going to do. Ahab sounds all pious, like all of us would be. Well, God, I don't need a sign. I just believe you. Baloney, if you know the story of Ahab, that is not him, okay? That's not, that's not how it works. God then says to him, hey, I'm going to give you a sign, and he gives him the greatest sign of all. Isaiah 7, verse number 14. Therefore, the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us. That's what, that, that is a promise that God says to this wicked king, this guy that is evil, he says to him, hey, God's going to give you a sign, and this is going to be a great sign. A virgin shall conceive. That statement, first of all, should go, how does that happen? Okay? And then we're going to call him, his name it shall be called Emmanuel. That is a wonderful kind of statement. But it's not just a prediction. It's actually fulfilled. Now, this is what we just celebrated in Christmas. So go over to Luke chapter 1, verses 31 through 35. Again, I told you we've got a lot of verses, okay? So be prepared. Luke 1, 31 through 35. 
Of course, the angel is now talking to Mary. I had a lot more verses. I condensed it down because I realized my sermon was getting way too long. So Luke 1, 31, it says, And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. He shall be great and shall be called the son of the highest. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. And he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there shall be no end. Then said Mary unto the angel, How shall this be, seeing I know not a man? And the angel answered and said unto her, The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. And as we look at this, this is really the fulfillment of the incarnation. We know the story. Hopefully you read it on Christmas Day. You know the story of how a virgin conceived and she bare a son and it was Jesus. And we know that that is God in human flesh. But do we ever really think about it? It's one thing to just read through the story. It's another thing to really let that story sink in. So as we talk about the incarnation, it was a promise. It was fulfilled. But I want to look at next the humility of the incarnation. This first point is setting us up for what we're going to really spend a lot of time in, okay? The humility of the incarnation. Philippians chapter 2 is a very convicting passage to me. Anybody else? It says, let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus, right? That, that passage, that passage is extremely convicting because I don't see that mind in me very often, right? So let's look at what it says. Philippians 2, verses 5 through 8. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. Why, why is that statement big? Because he was equal with God, okay? He thought it not robbery to be equal with God because he is God, Okay, so let's continue on. This next verse, let this sink in. But made himself of no reputation. This is the king of kings and lord of lords. Made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant. And was made in the likeness of men and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Anybody else kind of struggle with those verses where you're like, that's how I'm supposed to think, and that's how I'm supposed to act? Anybody else? Am I the only heathen? Just raise your hand. Somebody else here? Anybody? Okay, we got a few. Thank you. Thanks for the help. Okay, the humility of the incarnation. Don't forget that Jesus is equal with God. Okay? Don't forget that Jesus was active in creation. When God formed man out of the dust of the ground, Jesus was involved. And Jesus, being God, knew full well what man would do. Knew full well that man would still eat that fruit. Knew full well that he would one day die. Knew full well exactly how much pain he would have to endure. The fact that he would have to endure the very sins of Adam and everyone else on himself. Still went through it. Anybody else would have been like, uh, no, I'm not going to form man and we'll just be good. Anybody else? You think about this, there is a tremendous humility in the incarnation. God, the creator of the universe, said, you know what? I'm going to send my son because I love you that much. And he's going to die a terrible death on a cross for you. I don't know about you, but that makes me think tonight. These verses, they're not just verses. They should impact you. This Christmas season shouldn't just be a season where it's like, okay, yeah, we got pretty trees. And yeah, we hand out gifts. God became flesh. Amen. That is amazing. 
The fact that he limited his deity to be in the form of a man. It just makes your head spin. Anybody else's head hurting? It's just, it's an amazing thing. But don't lose sight of the next phrase. Look at John 1.14 again. And the word was made flesh. Right? We know that. We know that from Luke chapter 2. Look at this next phrase here. And dwelt among us. That statement is a big statement. So point number two tonight. The word dwelt among us. He didn't just take on the form of man. He actually lived a sinless life. He walked around. He experienced a lot of different things. We're going to look at some of the things that he went through. But it is an amazing thing that God became flesh and he dwelt among his creation. There would have been times that I would have completely wiped everybody off the planet. The first time anybody said anything like harsh about my, you know, about Mary or about me, dude, you're just all done. We're just, we're going to restart, right? But that's not what he did. The first thing I see in the, in the word dwelt among us, and this is a big thing, he was tempted. Hebrews chapter 4, one of my favorite passages in scripture, just because of the implications of this passage. It's an amazing thing. Look at what it says. For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Then look at verse number 16. Let us, therefore, because of this previous statement, come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. God became flesh, and one of the reasons he became flesh was so that he could be tempted, so you could come to him with full confidence that he knew what it was like. Anybody hurting tonight? Maybe physically, maybe emotionally, maybe you're just struggling. Anybody hurting? God knows what that's like. That is an amazing thing. I also want to make this very clear that Jesus could not have fallen to this temptation, okay, since he's God. He is absolutely sinless. However, Jesus was tempted. So here's what I want you to understand. So he knows what it's like. Later we're going to look at it and how he gave us an example of how we can be victorious over temptation. But he knows what it's like to be tempted. He knows what it's like to suffer. He knows what it's like to be even rejected, as we're going to look right now. So, first of all, he was tempted. Second of all, he was rejected. Isaiah 53, 3. Of course, this is a prophecy of what he's going to be. If you want to look at his rejection, you can look at a lot of different stories, okay, throughout the Gospels of how he was rejected. But look at how Isaiah describes it. He is despised and rejected of men a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. The fact that God became flesh and was rejected repeatedly is one of those things I just do not understand. You see him do miracles over and over again, these miracles that no one could explain, and they completely rejected him. You see a guy who's been blind from birth, and he heals him, and he's seeing how, would you re- how could you reject that and his message and who he is? Someone who's been laying around and you've seen him and you've walked by him and you've heard him groan and you've heard him ask for money and you know that he's been lame since birth and now you see the guy hopping around, jumping around, running around. How do you not believe that this guy is different than everybody else? How do you see Jesus who raises someone from the dead and you still go, I don't believe him. I don't understand it. But he was rejected. How many of you have ever been rejected before? 
Just think in your heart. Yeah, we want to reject it, right? Aren't you glad that your God knows what that's like? I, I am just amazed at the fact that God became flesh and dwelt among us. He was tempted, he was rejected, and he suffered. He suffered. We saw that in Isaiah 53, but let's look at some other passages here. John 11. John 11 is a wonderful passage. It talks about Lazarus, right? A really cool story and a story that makes you kind of think a little bit. Because as you read through the account, it is kind of like head-scratching that Jesus did delay, right? There was a definite delay in Jesus in coming to Lazarus and coming to his aid. There was a definite delay. And we find that the whole reason for it is so that the Son of Man could be glorified. The whole reason of it was so that he could raise him from the dead. But look at this story in John 11, beginning with verse number 32. Then when Mary was come where Jesus was and saw him, she fell down at his feet, saying unto him, Lord, if thou hadst been here, my brother had not died. Was that a truthful statement? Yes, Jesus could have very easily healed Lazarus. Okay, she's not spewing lies here. He very easily could have done it. Look at what happens next. When Jesus therefore saw her weeping and the Jews also weeping which came with her, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled. I mean, he didn't say anything, but inside he hurt. He knew what it was like to suffer loss. And then he said, hey, where have ye laid him? In verse 34. They said unto him, Lord, come and see. And what happens next in verse number 34, 35? Jesus wept. How many of you ever, like, you got to memorize a verse, and you're like, oh, John eleven thirty five. 35, Jesus wept. Anybody? Anybody? That was me, okay? I'm a heathen. I know. It's the truth. But Jesus knew what it was like to suffer loss. Jesus at the cross, we don't see him mention Joseph. Why? I believe because Joseph was already dead. Why wasn't, like, why did he say, hey, John, behold your mother, and mother, behold your son? Because his dad was already gone. Joseph was already gone. He knew what it was like to suffer loss. You're suffering loss tonight. Jesus was there. He suffered loss. He knew what it's like. I think also the reason why Jesus wept was because he knew that he was going to raise him from the dead and pull him back from where he was at. And then Lazarus would have to die twice, which would totally stink. But Jesus wept. Do you realize tonight that Jesus not only suffered loss, but he suffered pain? And of course, the instant that you think about pain, you think about the cross... So Isaiah 53, again, look at verses 4 and 5. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. Don't lose sight that Jesus suffered real pain. When he was hanging on the cross, it wasn't like, okay, whatever, let's get this over with. He suffered real pain. He was man. Jesus suffered pain, and no doubt more pain than any of us will probably ever experience. The Romans were very good at a few things, and one of the things was to know how to hurt you. And when they, when they beat Jesus, when they hung him on the cross, when they bashed that, thorn, that crown of thorns into his head, they knew what they were doing. They were not just like, oh, let's find something and let's just do it. They knew what they were doing, and they were inflicting the most pain they could possibly inflict on a human being. That Jesus knows what it's like to suffer pain. The fact that he dwelt among us is an incredible thing. 
God became man and walked amongst men in Roman times, which is ridiculous to me. Of all times, we couldn't pick America, you know, in 2019 or 2018 when everything was awesome. In Roman times. Why? So that he could die. But I want you to also look at this, and this is where we're going to spend probably the most, well, the most amount of time. Point number three. The word left us an example. When I think of Christmas and I think of the incarnation, the incredible incarnation, the God becoming flesh, one of the things that amazes me is one of the reasons why he came was not just to die for us, but to leave us an example. It's an amazing thing. We see it in our passage in John 1.14. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glories of the only begotten of the Father. Look at this last part, full of grace and truth. When Jesus lived on this earth, he left you and I an example. I want you to go to another passage, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse number 21. Look at what this verse says. For even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow his steps. And then he talks about what that example is in the verses to come, and we're going to get there. But as we think about Jesus Christ, the word left us an example. When we go into 2024, I don't know what your 2023 was like or what your, what are those things called, resolutions were. I don't know what you planned on doing this year, but you may look back and you go, wow, I failed at everything. I wanted to lose weight and I gained it instead. Oops. I wanted to do whatever. I wanted to run a marathon and I barely run a mile. Oops. Maybe you said, man, I want to read the word of God more and I want to really spend some time studying it and you failed epically. As we think about that, I want you tonight and in the days to come as we get ready for the new year to look at the example that Jesus Christ left for you. He lived a sinless life, and as you study it, how should I deal with rejection? How should I deal with suffering? How should I deal with people being jerks? Jesus Christ left you an example. First of all, tonight, I want you to understand from John 1.14, when it says he is full of grace and truth. Let's look at how he handled that topic called grace. It's an amazing thing. When you think of grace, one of those things that Jesus dealt with with grace was that ever-familiar topic of rejection. I want you to look at John 15. John 15, we're going to look at a few verses here because I think these verses, they come from the words of our, of our Savior. And they give us something and an insight into suffering and rejection. We're beginning with verse number 18 of John 15. If the world hates you, ye know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love his own, because you are not of the world. But I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. Remember the word that I said unto you. Listen to this. The servant is not greater than his Lord. If they have persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they have kept my saying, they will keep yours also. Jesus gives us a proper perspective in these verses. Hey, remember, if the world hates you, remember it hated me first. If the world rejects you, it's because you're mine. He gives us a perspective. How many today would say in 2023, you feel like the world hates Christians? Anybody raise, just raise your hand. Like, 
every news article you see about Christians, it's Christians are a bunch of bigots, they hate people. I don't know where they get that from, but that's not the truth, right? We should love the world because God loves the world. And so I should love the world enough to where I'm going to share the message of Jesus Christ with them. But the world hates Christians. Why is it that Christians are always the ones that get attacked? It always seems like it. Well, well, they're, well we're going to sue the Christians, or we're going to do this, and we're going to take them to, take them to court because they won't do this. It always seems like the Christians are under attack. Why? Because Jesus said right here, they're going to hate you because they hated me. The proper perspective. But look at verse number 21. But all these things will they do unto you for my namesake, because they know not him that sent me. You know what that gives me? A proper understanding of rejection. Why do people reject our message? Because simply put, they don't believe on God. They don't believe in Jesus Christ. Why do people reject us? And why is it when I share the gospel, it seems like, they get really hostile. We may have had a great relationship before, but I share the gospel and now they get mean and they get really hatred and, and vengeful. Why? Because they don't believe in God. Jesus very clearly gives us a proper understanding when it comes to rejection. Of course, he's talking to his disciples. Of course, they are going to be rejected. Of course, if you've looked throughout church history, they are going to suffer and suffer tremendously but God is giving them a proper perspective and a proper understanding of rejection. But not only that, but I want you to look at this. He gave us also, not only in grace, did he give us a perspective in rejection, but also in suffering. First of all, when you talk about suffering, I think this is an amazing thing. Look, look at Luke twenty two forty two. When it comes to suffering, Jesus Christ did something that I don't think you and I like to do. He surrendered to the will of the Father. This verse has always kind of gotten me in Luke twenty-two forty-two, and you're probably already reading it, saying, Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. Of course, he is in the garden. He's getting ready to die. He understands. He knows what he's going to go through. I love the statement, though, at the end of this, nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. You know what that shows me in Jesus Christ is that he was 100% surrendered to his Father's will. There's not a part of Jesus that was saying, ah, you know, I don't know if I'm going to go through with this. He was saying, hey, God, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, it's not about me. It's about your will. And I think as we get ready for 2024, I cannot believe I'm even saying that. I thought I'd be dead a long time ago because I'm an idiot. It reminds me that I have to surrender to God's will in 2024. It is easy. It is easy for us to say, but I don't want to. It really doesn't matter. There's a, a song that I used to hear. It's not on our station. But God said it. I believe it, and that settles it. The middle part, it really doesn't matter. Whether or not you believe it or not, God said it, and that settles it. Now, you believe it. That may settle it in your heart, but that doesn't settle anything in God's working. God said it. That settles it. If you and I would just surrender to God's will in 2024, we will have the most successful year we've ever had in our entire life. We have got to get to a place where we surrender to the will of God like our Savior did. The grace that he even surrendered to this is an amazing thing. 
But not only do we see in suffering his surrender, but I also see his purity. Look at 1 Peter chapter 2 again, verses 21 through 24. We've looked at 21, but I want to read it again, and I want to give you a little more. It says this, For even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow his steps. Look at this next verse, verse number 22. Who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. Who, when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. Who his own self bare our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, being dead to sin, should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. Do you get the whole point here? Remember in verse number 21, he left us an example in his suffering. And then it goes on to say how he left us an example. He lived a life of 100% purity. He didn't know sin. Neither was guile found in his mouth. When he was reviled, when he was accused, when he was mistreated, he didn't come back at them with angry words. No, what did he do? He was silent. And of course, then he bear our sins. We don't do that for anybody else, but he left us an example in purity. If you want to have a successful year in 2024, you're going to have to start living this book. I think the problem with a lot of us is we know a lot about this book, but we don't live it. We know what God expects of us, but yet I don't do it. I know God wants me to witness, but eh, it's kind of uncomfortable. I know God wants me to be pure, but that's not how the world lives, so I guess I'm good. No. I know God tells me to be kind and forgiving, but do you know what they did to me? I know God very clearly tells us to study his word, but man, that's, I don't know if I have the time. Guys, we know what God wants us to do. The problem is a lot of us aren't doing it. We have a lot of people who know a lot, but they're like that man in James where he looks at, the, he looks at himself in the mirror and he's like, oh, there's a big blemish on my face and he just goes about and does whatever he wants and he just acts like nothing is wrong. That happens to Josiah and KK sometimes. You know, they get like food on their face and like, hey, go wash off your face. And they come back out and they look exactly the same as when they went in, just wet. I'm like, how does that even happen? But I know that's funny. But what about us? I've done some things, you know, like replacing my brakes on my car. My entire face is covered in nasty brake juice or whatever it is. And if I came in here and I preached a sermon and my face is covered in brake juice... That's my sweat with the brake nastiness. Okay, in case you're curious, that's what the brake juice is. You would all be like, dude, there's something wrong with that guy. You know that. Thanks a lot, Linda. Thanks a lot. But guys, here's the thing. We come into church. We hear a message preached from the Word of God. And we know there's things wrong. And we go out and we act like nothing happened. That is just as foolish. Do you understand what I'm saying? It's not enough for us just to come. We've got to take it in, and we've got to then do something with it. So, first of all, his grace in rejection, in suffering. Next, how did he leave us an example in truth? In this topic of truth. First of all, we've already looked at this kind of a broader look at it, but in temptation. Matthew chapter 4 is a wonderful passage when 
you look at Jesus and when he is tempted of the devil in the wilderness. It's a pretty amazing thing. And honestly, he could have just said, devil, get out of here. And the devil would have had to listen because he's God, right? But look at what he does. And we're just going to look at one, okay? We're not going to look at all of them because, again, the sermon would be even longer. He says this in verse number eight. Again, the devil taketh him up to an exceeding high mountain and showeth him all the kingdom of the world and the glory of them and saith unto him, all these things will I give thee if thou wilt fall down and worship me. Pause here for a second, okay, before we go to verse 10. We all know that this is obviously against God, right? Any worship that is ascribed to anything but God himself is idolatry. By the way, covetousness is idolatry. So before you go, well, I don't have a Baal idol at my house, a lot of us are awful covetous about other people's stuff. And so God equates the two. So just FYI. So then verse number 10. Then, say, then saith Jesus unto him, get thee, hence, get thee hence, Satan, for it is written. Where is it written? It is written in Deuteronomy. Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. You see, Jesus left us an example in truth and how he handled temptation. He showed us how to be successful and how to be victorious over temptation. And that is what? The word of God. Why is our youth successful or harvest recovery or whatever it's called now? Why is that successful? Because of the word of God. It's not Mark Heishman and not the rest of the team. It's because of the word of God. Look at this verse, a verse that oftentimes we forget. Psalm 119.11. Thy word have I hid in mine heart. I've memorized it. I have put this into my mind that I might not sin against thee. Uh-oh. You know what that's going to take? Work. I am terrible at memorizing anything. I really struggle. But I am thankful that when the, in those areas that I struggle with, you have a sin that's besetting you, you know what you need to do? You need to pull out a concordance or you need to pull out a phone and you need to look up verses that deal with the topic you are struggling with. I'm struggling with lying, Dan. What should I do? Look up verses on lying and memorize a ton of them. And so when you are tempted to lie, you go, wait a second. No, I'm not going to do that because of this verse. And you quote it back. I struggle with my thought life. What should I do? Memorize verses on purity. I struggle with my attitude towards my parents or I struggle with my attitude towards my spouse. You memorize verses about that topic. You can be victorious. Of course, Jesus was not going to fall and worship Satan. We know that. He's God. Why would he ever do that? But Jesus went through that temptation and was led to that wilderness to leave you an example of how to be successful. Hmm. I think it would be wise of us to take the example that he left and do something with it. I think some of us, our resolution this year needs to be, I'm going to memorize verses on the topics that I struggle with. And I'm going to put some work into it. Well, I can't memorize very well. You memorize one verse, and then you memorize one more. And you keep working at it. You write it down. You write it down a whole bunch of times. You put it on a 3 out 5 card, put it in your pocket, and you walk around with it. And every time you put your hand in your pocket, guys, girls don't really have pockets, but you memorize, maybe they do, I don't know. You put them in your pocket and you feel that card and you go, what is that? And you pull it out and you go, oh yeah, there's that verse. And you meditate on it and you think on it and you put it into your life. Jesus had verses memorized from a book we don't look at very often, Deuteronomy. Why? To leave us an example. 
So he left us an example in truth, in temptation, and also in his testimony. Look at John chapter 10, verses 30 through 33. Some people say that Jesus never claimed to be God. Can I tell you this tonight? That is baloney. We're going to look at some verses that clearly tell us that Jesus did claim to be God. Let's look at them. John 10, 30 through 33. I and my Father are one. This statement alone was a big deal. He is making himself equal with the Father, with God. Then the Jews, look at what verse number 31. Then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. This is, this is funny to me, verse number 32. And Jesus answered them, Many good works have I showed, showed you from my Father. For which of the, those works do you stone me? Jesus, of course, knew what they were doing and why they were doing it. But Jesus' answer to them is like, what are you doing, guys? Are you doing this for all the good things I've done? And look at what they say. And I think he's setting them up for this, for this answer. Because people, he knew people would claim that he was not God. So look at verse number 33. The Jews answered him, saying, for a good work we stone thee not, but for blasphemy. And because that thou, being a man, makest thyself God. Was Jesus God? Yes. But I want, you to t- I want, I want us to think about this for a second. Jesus was, was truthful about who he was. When he makes a statement, he knew what their response would be. But he said it anyway. Why? Because to do anything else would have been a lie. Jesus was truthful about who he was. Here's my question to you. Are you? So often we hide the fact that we know Jesus Christ as our Savior because of fear of what people are going to say. So here's what I want to leave you with. With this point, as we prepare for a new year, let's make a commitment tonight to sharing our faith with others. When it came to his testimony, Jesus dealt truthfully. He didn't hide it. He didn't find some creative way to say it without saying it. He said it plainly. And there's going to have to be some point in our life where we share our faith and we share it boldly. And we say, okay, I am a child of God and this is why I do what I do. And this is why I come to church. And this is why I have verses memorized. And this is why I don't talk like you. I'm going to share my faith. Over and over and over again in Scripture, I am reminded of just how incredible the incarnation really is. And I think sometimes in this Christmas season, we lose sight of just how miraculous that truly was. The other day, we were driving. I don't remember where we were, but we were driving, and I saw an inflatable baby Jesus with, like, Joseph and Mary. And I'm like, oh, that's cute, but weird. It just felt weird to me. I think sometimes we get into the kind of the cutiness of the season, and we go, oh, Jesus was a baby. And, oh, it was silent. No, it wasn't. Okay, the night was not silent. Okay? It wasn't a silent night. There would have been sheep and animals still making noise. They don't just stop making noise because a baby is present. It wasn't a silent night. And it would have stunk. And it would have been weird. But Jesus Christ became flesh. He dwelt dwelt among us. And he left us an example. I don't know about you tonight. But that gives me great peace and great hope for 2024. That if God could do something as miraculous as become flesh and live among us and leave us an example, that shows me that he knows what he's doing and he even has a plan for us in whatever 2024 brings. Let's stand and let's have a time of invitation because I think some of us need to make some commitments tonight to our God, 
to living maybe more holy in 2024, to maybe thanking God for just what he did, and the amazingness, the incredibleness of the incarnation of our Savior. Don't lose sight of it. As we begin to, as a musician begins to play, I encourage you to do real business with God. You may have fallen, and you may have fallen short in 2023, but the coolest thing is, you don't have to in 2024. Make some commitments. Do business with God tonight.